Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Fantastic fiction at KGB. Thanks for coming on such a sloppy wet night. You know, sometimes we worry that when the weather's bad that no one's going to show up and you guys proved us wrong, so thank you for coming. Um, my name is Matthew Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing this for, Ellen and I have been doing this for over a decade. The series has been going since the late 90s, and it is always free. We never charge a cover. The only thing that we ask of you is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, and tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep you hydrated. Please do that, because you, by supporting the bar, you support the series. You keep the bar going, you keep the series going, and then we get to have great readers, like, like the two readers we have tonight. Uh, tonight we have Nicole Corner-Stace and Barbara Krasnov. I'm gonna read for, uh, for everyone. Super excited. Uh, I believe, Nicole, this is your second time here, is that correct? And it's Barbara's first time, so welcome them, welcome them both to, to the series. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. We have a website and we have a mailing list. If you go to uh, kgbfantasticfiction.org, you can go there and sign up for our mailing list. We send out a, like two or three emails a month just to remind you of the series. We do not spam. We don't sell your emails to anyone else. Uh, we only get $100 per name, not that much. Ellen, Ellen and I have only gone to Barbados three times. Um, Before the hurricane. Yeah. So uh, next month, November 20th, we have David Mack and Max Gladstone. Yeah. December 18th, Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballinger. January 15th, Cassandra Kaw and Richard Kadri. February 19th, James Patrick Kelly and P. Deli Clark. March 18th, Robert Levy and Daniel Brown. April 15th, Clay McLeod Chapman. And May 20th, this is, we're going into 2020. Can you believe it's 2020? Alana C. Myers. So uh, we hope you will... We have other people lined up. We will let you know. Sign up for the mailing list, you will find out. Um, so, on to tonight's readers. Uh, Nicole Corner-Stace is the author of the Norton Award finalist, Archivist Wasp, and its sequel, Latchkey. Her next novel, Firebreak, is due out from Saga in 2020. She can be found online at NicoleCornerStace.com or on Twitter are on Twitter at WireWalking. Here's Nicole. Hello. <clears throat> so I'm Nicole, and I'm reading from my novel Firebreak, which is due out next year from Saga. 
um, which was described to me at one point as if Ready Player One and Black Mirror had a very angry activist baby. <laughs> and uh, so Mallory is my protagonist, and she is an orphan and refugee of a corporate civil war. Um, she's basically the 100 years in the future equivalent of a Twitch streamer. And she, uh, she has a bunch of other jobs also, but in fulfilling a request for a sponsor, she's kind of gotten in over her head and stirred up some stuff she probably shouldn't have. And now her roommates, because she lives with uh, eight other people in a hotel room that's been repurposed as housing, uh, they're, they're having her back and trying to protect her. Hard to make the case that you're a corporate sellout when you're down there with a sign telling the company to go fuck themselves, Keisha says. Everybody recording? Everybody is. Everybody but me. Jessen nudges me. Ready? As much as I'm going to be. I follow them out of the room and into the hall. They arrange themselves around me with extras in front and behind, and we walk down all six flights of stairs together. Our hall is practically empty. Whether they've all gone to comforts of home to beg for water, or they've just cleared out so nobody thinks to associate them with me, I don't know. But only a few people yell at us, and that seems to be mostly because we're taking up the entire hall. Keisha walks backward in front of me, recording. She doesn't stream the game or even play it as far as I'm aware. The only time I ever hear her discuss it is in the context of how the module Jessa and I play is thinly veiled war propaganda. But apparently the whole time she's secretly been a mod of one of the indie news blogs that helped blow up my videos and she opens up a live feed there. Or I realize maybe it's never been secret at all. Maybe I was just keeping to myself too much to know. It's not like I go around asking people about their day. Four years I've lived with these people and I know virtually nothing about them. We've been background extras in each other's lives at best, side quest NPCs. And yet here they are, walking shoulder to shoulder with me, putting their asses on the line beside me. It's so strange I can't even fully process it. It strikes my mind and glances off. Would I have done the same for them? I'd like to think so. But after all these years of being a good little customer citizen, it's honestly anybody's guess. Here's the real Mallory, Keisha's yelling into her stream, the real Nykorix. She posted a video airing out some dirty corporate laundry and the company didn't like that. They didn't like it at all. So they tried to shut her up. They killed our water lines, every building in Old Town, gone, to get her to stop, to make sure none of us got the same idea. She said, fine, you want to bring other people into this? Let's bring other people into this. She planned a protest so everybody would know about the corruption and greed and lies we're living with every day. So they locked out her implant and invented a version of her they could control. That puppet shit you saw? Remember whose channel you saw that on? Are you really going to believe the same people who cut off our water? Believe us instead. Believe that Mal would never sell out to those greedy fucks and you hit them where it hurts. There's some shady shit going on here, no question, but remember. You want the real Nykorix, the real Mal, the real truth? You follow the feeds coming out of Old Town, live, unedited, untouched, and you see for yourself what's what. She goes on like this the whole way down all six flights of stairs to the lobby. Or she would have, except they catch on and lock her out too before she hits the fourth floor landing. So Tegan takes over, streaming on the same site. I mean, I know they didn't like the company, but I didn't know about this. These people control everything, they say, lenses panning from me to Jessa to the crowd around us holding protest signs. When I glance around, there seem to be more people now than what we left with. Our little crowd isn't so little now. It stretches back down the hall, trailing behind us like a banner. Stellaris and Greenleaf, owning our food and our water, our power and our communications. What next? Our air? What does that leave for us? What do we get to control? Nothing. Nothing except what we take back for ourselves. Thanks to the Neutralities Accord, we can't grow our own food unless it's Greenleaf Industries seeds and Stellaris Innovations water. They don't let us drink unless we're begging for their rations or we're paying a dollar an ounce at the company stores. Every single person in Old Town is clinically dehydrated, and you better believe we're not taking as many showers and doing as much laundry and flushing the toilets as often as we should. 
Poor hygiene spreads disease, but do they care? I say to you, they do the fuck not. They love it because then we have to pay $400 to someone to show our faces in a walk-in clinic, a company clinic. Is that any kind of way to live? I thought the protest was Saturday, Talia mutters behind me. But Tegan hears her. The protest is Saturday, they shout. And every day before that, and every day after, until we get our goddamn fucking human rights, and then, that's when they cut Tegan off too. Suresh steps in, but then the whole crowd stops moving. We're at the landing between the lobby and the second floor, and whoever's in front stops dead on the stairs near the door, backing us all up behind them. All kinds of thoughts race through my head, none of them good. Guards blocking the exit to the lobby so they can shoot us when they let us through. Guards blocking the exit to the lobby because they've already chucked something into the stairwell, and my part of the crowd hasn't happened on it yet. Resonance grenades, hallucinogen bursts, drones. I listen for the telltale sounds of each of these, but can't make them out over the crowd, which has only gotten bigger. I'm on the landing, and it's solid-packed people the whole way down the flight of stairs between me and the door. It's loud and uncomfortable, and smells like the sour laundry and sweat and breath of many dozens of borderline malnourished and chronically dehydrated humans. We must have gathered bystanders from each hall, a few here, a few there, the whole way down. I can't really blame them. It's probably not too clear at a glance what the fuck is going on here, and they're sticking around until they figure it out. Certainly they seem more curious to check out the drama than fired up to join any kind of half-assed cause. Already, Keisha's and Tegan's speech has sent some of them scurrying back up the stairs at top speed, covering themselves from the inevitable facial recognition sweep that's going to get us all flagged and tagged if this escalates much farther, and very possibly even if it doesn't. No matter what, everybody keep recording, Tegan yells. What's going on down there? There are windows in each stairwell just in front of the door. Whatever's transfixing those people in front, it's out one of these windows. Others are pushing down the stairs to see, but before this ends in full-on disaster, Somebody yells up in a tone almost like awe. It's raining. For a second, we all look at each other, and in that silence, I hear it. It's the first rain after long months of sleet and filthy snow, and it's battering the fire escapes and pounding on the roof and sizzling to the street in sheets upon sheets of water. For a second, we're all held there, tense and undecided while the rain hammers down. It sounds like all the barrels in all the storage rooms in all the buildings in every street in Old Town being emptied out at once. We all stand and look at each other, listening waiting for someone to make the first move. Then somebody below us shoves that downstairs door open and we pour out into the lobby. Keep recording, Tegan shouts as we get swept down the stairs, jostled by a few more people as they detach from the group and push their way back up the stairs. Their voice is lost in the commotion. Keep recording and watch the guards. By the time I get out into the lobby, the guards have abandoned their post at the water storage room in order to cover the stairwell with their guns. We're not doing anything, a man shouts at them. He holds up his protest sign. Just exercising our free speech rights. Last I checked, we still have those, and we're all streaming this. One of the guards grabs him and slams him to the ground with one hand. The other hand waves the protest sign in his face. This is libel and defamation against Dolores Innovation, subject to prosecution. Stream that. That's not prosecution, that's assault, a woman yells back, and rifles swing around to bear on her. She kneels, hands in the air, sign held up above her head. It reads, water for all means water for all. Another guard rips it out of her hands, sets one booted foot to her shoulder, and pushes her over sideways. Stay down or get put down, he screams at her. We are being assaulted and demeaned by Stellaris sec forces, Suresh is yelling, sweeping his head back and forth to get a nice, clear, panning shot of the action. He points down the hall toward the water storage room. There are thousands of gallons of water locked up in there while people are dying. I crash to my knees. They recognize me, I think. It's over. But it's just the crowd knocked me sideways. Jessa hauls me back up. Disperse, another guard is shouting at us in tinny monotone through the bug helmet. Disperse, disperse. You heard him, Keisha shouts. She's holding the outside door open. The crowd disperses into the street. 
The guards chase after, shouting, having abandoned the man and woman on the ground, so a few of us help them up and then we all run out together. It's funny how you can forget how hard it can rain. It drenches us immediately and it's cold as hell and it melts my protest sign to sludge in my hands and I turn my face up to it and open my mouth and it's delicious. They always try to scare you out of drinking rainwater. It's a crime, of course, but they always hit up the disease angle for good measure. There are at least 25 commonly known waterborne pathogens in everyday rainwater. That's why we at Stellaris Innovations spare no expense in rain running every drop of our water through state-of-the-art filtration systems. We see that safety alert every time there's so much as a drizzle. And at the moment, we don't care. It's colder than what comes out of the ration barrels or the hotel sinks, and it tastes completely different, and it's free, and it's water, and it's ours. Disperse, the guards are shouting. Return to your homes. Some people lose their nerve, break and run, but a surprising number of them stay. It's hard to hear their threats over the rain. Besides, we've all seen the news clips of protests being disbanded before. They don't open fire into a crowd, not with live rounds anyway, not when so many people are watching. And there are hundreds of us out here, thousands maybe. People are walking and running and biking in from other streets. Some of them are flying drones before them, getting footage from a bird's eye view. There are countless eyes on these guards, countless eyes broadcasting to the world. Whatever these guards' orders are, for now they're stopping right at the threshold of what they'd clearly rather be doing, which is beating our faces in. Lucky for us, the last thing the company needs to top off their week is a bunch of trigger-happy security guards doing target practice on unarmed civilians exercising their free speech rights all over the internet. I've been so caught up staring at whatever is unfolding here that I've lost sight of Jessa, and now I can't find her. It's chaos out here, total chaos. I don't know where anybody is. Jessa, Tegan, Suresh, Keisha, the rain has drenched us all, rendered us all practically unrecognizable from a distance. The guards are yelling and firing their guns above our heads and people are yelling back and waving the sodden mess of their signs and more people run out of the hotel, maybe having seen us from the windows. And a little group of them comes out with giant packages of company store plastic cups under each arm and they rip them open and people take stacks of cups and dash around handing them out and everyone holds them up above their heads and the rain falls and falls. People are pouring out of other buildings now, people and guards, and some of the people bypass the guards by filing down the fire escapes, and some of them just stay put, but start holding their own cups and bottles and bowls and even plastic baggies out the windows, throwing more plastic cups and baggies down to us in the street. There's a sound that starts to grow, a soft, low rattling that grows louder and louder and eventually reveals itself to be the sound of rain falling into red plastic cups held in dozens and then hundreds of hands raised to the sky. I have no idea how this happened. I guess somebody posted the idea and it spread fast. Or maybe it's a thing that just occurred. We're all thirsty after all. It's a nothing little symbol of a protest or a resistance movement or a riot or a revolution or whatever this turns out to be, but at the moment it strikes me as oddly beautiful. Red plastic cups full of rain. Still the guards don't make a move, which is strange. People are overtly poaching water right under their noses, but they're just hanging back by the buildings, yelling at us to go home. They're not even firing taggers. It's almost like they're waiting for something. Then it happens. All at once, almost everyone around me stops like someone's hit pause. At first I think it's something the guards are doing, but it's not. It's their lenses. They shut off the power again. And then comes a new sound. From the left and the right of us, all up and down the sidewalks lining the street, back where the guards were standing. It's a sound like water being sprayed into a fire and sizzling into nothing. I turn, already knowing what I'll see. The sound is rain vaporizing against the guards' repulsor shields, which they've activated at some point in the five seconds since the power shut down. From each side of the street, the guards advance, not one by one, in lockstep, together. Something very close to panic seizes me by the spine. Jessa! I scream, but my voice is swallowed by the sound of the shields and the rain and the yelling of everyone else around me when they notice what's going on. 
The guards take another step. Steam pours off the glowing orange wall of the collective shield projections. The rain that falls before them doesn't get a chance to hit the ground. Jessa! I can't see her anywhere. I squelch the reflex to try and message her. The people around me are getting agitated. The crowd is rocking back and forth, trying to keep clear of the repulsors. People are pitching their cups at the oncoming shield wall. It's like throwing mosquitoes onto a bug zapper. At least three separate groups start chanting some kind of protest thing, which breaks up immediately into screams. Jessa, where are you? A rushing, shouting sound from up the street toward the school, and more people start stampeding down toward us from somewhere. It's getting too crowded to move. They're hurting us, somebody is shouting, hoarse and strange. Gas? Or do they just blow their voice out trying to project? Stop moving. This is organized assault. They can't chase you if you don't run. I catch a glimpse of the speaker, a waterlogged person that might have been Jackson standing in the stirrups of somebody else's hands, shouting through a crappy makeshift megaphone made out of a red plastic cup before he's toppled from his perch by the jostling crowd. Hurting us where? Away from the school puts us down toward the old highway to the city where the checkpoints are. I remember the interrogation pods, the boy on his face on the pavement, but there are too many of us. It makes no sense. I whirl back around as something bright catches my eye, brighter than the shields. A teenage girl runs down the street from the direction of the school, holding something burning in her hand. She pitches it in a high overhead arc above the shield wall, forcing the guards beneath it to break the wall and raise their shields over their heads like umbrellas. The bottle smashes against those horizontal shields and burning oil slips and skitters off the edge, dripping globs of fire onto the guards. They're maybe ten feet up the line from me and I can hear the burning oil hit the wet ground. It smells like a new paved street after a summer storm. The opening in the wall does not go unnoticed. People are pelting the exposed few guards with anything to hand. Cups and bottles, but also broken pieces of sidewalk and glass frontage that have lain in the street since the helicopters arrived. Someone throws a water credit reader exactly like the one above our sink. Someone else lobs a brick and it takes a guard square in the face. Bug helmet and all, he staggers. That's all the invitation needed. People rush the weakness in the line, trying to break back through and flee. I try to run after them, but I'm wedged in place by bodies on all sides and I can't get any traction on the street. My worn-out shoes slip against the wet pavement and I get nowhere. They push and push and the line almost breaks. And then the guards swing their shields back down into position, straight down into that tight-packed mass of bodies. And the bodies go flying as far as they can. There isn't much room. They're repelled back against the crowd as the crowd is still pushing forward and four people, five, get caught between the press of the crowd and the repulsor field. And then the real screaming starts. Get back, I try to yell at them, but my voice is for shit in all of this. I shoulder forward and try to haul people backward away from the ones crushed against the shields, but there's nowhere for them to go either. Nowhere for any of us to go. The screaming is only rising in pitch and volume both, joined now by a frying sound and a smell to match. And now it's starting on the other side of the street as the space grows too small to contain the people being chased down from the school. They're not going to hurt us down toward the checkpoint. They're not going to take us anywhere. They're going to pin us down here with their repulsor shields until a helicopter or a drone fleet comes in from the city and gasses us. At which point, maybe we wake up in jail or maybe we wake up dead. I try to tell myself that this has nothing to do with me. Nothing at all to do with that video I took of 06 and 22 that day. Not really. If I didn't scare the company into cutting water rations, it would have been someone else eventually. But this time, it was me. I need to get up higher, I say. Then I say it louder. Somebody help me get up higher! Like they did with Jackson or whoever that was. Nobody hears me, or nobody cares. I cut my hands to my mouth and shout as loud as I can, I'm Mallory Parker and I give up, I surrender, I turn myself in, just fucking stop. The crowd is surging behind me now, shoving in every direction at once. 
I get worked some paces away from the place where the shield wall almost broke, and then the tide turns again and I get shoved back around toward the movie theater across the street. I step on something that is not pavement. It gives underfoot, and I stumble sideways and am steadied by the pushing bodies. I'm bobbing in this fucked up panic ocean, and I can't turn around. And then the wall of people behind me starts to break and scatter in as much as they can in the press, leaving a gap just big enough for me to lose my footing and pitch into sidelong. For one blissful second, I don't know what happened, why there's now this space. Then I see the orange glow of the shields. Somehow the crowd's movement has inched me from the center the whole way over to the sidewalk, where the guards are waiting. Hey, I yell at them. My voice is fucked and it comes out as more of a shriek. I'm Mallory Parker. This all started because of me. Just arrest me and leave them out of it. Now I fucking well know the bug helmets amplify sound. Not to the extent that the operatives can hear with their actual ears, but still, I'm upwards of 98% sure these guards hear me. They just don't give a shit. My window of opportunity for turning myself in was narrow and fleeting and closed up shop days ago, and they probably would have just tossed me in the plastic digesters anyway, maybe even doing me the kindness of shooting me first. As it is, the bug helmets stare me down impassively while the crowd to all sides pitches, and I trip over something else lying in the street, and I look down to make sure it isn't what I hope to shit it's not, and it is, of course it is, I'm standing on a fucking person and she's not moving and there's blood coming out of her ear. Move, I scream, and nobody moves, and I'm trying to clear space and haul this girl up by her shoulders when the crowd senses the tiny open space around me and moves to fill it. They heave up behind me, and I'm thrown bodily forward onto the shield wall. It should be flinging me backwards. I have a few seconds to think before I black out. It's a repulsor. I should be being repulsed. But there's nowhere for me to be repulsed to. My feet aren't even touching the ground anymore. I'm pinned to the orange glow of the force field projection like a fly on the windshield. My teeth are vibrating in my head. It feels like my eyeballs are going to shiver into warm jelly and run down my face. Like every part of me that's touching the shield is trying to dissolve into its constituent atoms and scatter. Disperse is the last thought I can grab hold of. And then I drop down into the dark. draft chapters on my Patreon if anyone is interested in that sort of thing. Thank you so much! Thank you. We're going to take a break for about 10 minutes. I have something to drink and we will be back then. So come back. Welcome back to the second half of our KGB reading. Hello, Jim Freund. Calling Jim Freund. <laughs> we're we're having our second the second half of our reading, and tonight we are happy to welcome Barbara Krasnoff, who is the author of over 35 short stories, including Sabbath Rain, which was a finalist for the Nebula Award, and who recently published a mosaic novel titled The History of Soul 2065. She's also responsible for a series of captioned photos that can be found under the hashtag. Their backstories. Please welcome Barbara Krasnoff. Oh dear, okay. Um, I have nothing new, so I'm going to read something from History of Soul 2065. Um, and I tried to find one that was short enough 
for this venue and that no, that all of you nice people hadn't heard yet. Um, so I'm going to read one called Stoop Ladies, which... I love that one! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there goes that idea. Um, right. It takes, it takes place in 1983, and that's all you got to know. This is the way the world ends, Julie reads, not with a bang, but a whimper. She lifts her eyes from T.S. Eliot's poem to a puffed-up pigeon grooming itself on the windowsill. That's me, she tells the pigeon. They fired me, and all I could do was whimper. A typical Brooklyn bird, it doesn't seem particularly interested. <laughs> a high cackle bounces into the room from across the street. The pigeon flaps anxiously away while Julie peers outside. The ladies have gathered. Every summer evening, after the dishes are done and their men placed safely in front of the television set, they sit in the small yard next to the stoop, some on folding chairs and others on the concrete steps. The youngest in her 50s, the oldest past 80, they watch the passers-by and talk of schools and children, of changes in the neighborhood, of the new theater on the corner, and the cops who ticket their double-parked cars. On her walk home from the subway every evening, Julie usually nods at the ladies as she goes home to chicken and rice or a pizza from the restaurant on the corner. Although they nod back and even wave their hands in invitation, she typically just waves back as she climbs the steps to her front door. Only once or twice has she felt comfortable joining the crowd of elderly, gossiping women. It's bad enough, she tells herself, that she has to work so hard to be accepted by the beautiful, thin executives at her office, or the well-dressed, middle-aged men at the bars who look past her without even focusing. She's not going to associate herself with a group of obvious losers, blue-haired women past their prime. That would be admitting defeat admitting that her life is over after never having happened. Although Julie sometimes concedes to herself, the few times she let the voices draw her from her solitude, the ladies made her welcome. And it was pleasant, standing around with people who talked to her as if she were important, and asked for her sympathy and advice on stolen cars, misbehaving computers, children going away. Her beeper buzzes at her, she pulls it quickly from her belt and checks the message. No luck so far, it reads. We'll try to talk to Sam. Stay cool, Jenny. She reaches for the phone and dials Isabeau, who her mom had always called my extra special friend, and who always lent a sympathetic ear when Julie had a problem. When Julie's father left, Isabeau persuaded her mom, who had no idea how to do things like hire a mechanic or write a check, never mind handle a divorce, to leave the large, lonely house and move in with her and her two kids. And when Julie's mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was Isabeau who helped make those last couple of years as easy as possible. Isabeau's phone rings several times, and then the answering machine clicks on. The hell with it. Julie hangs up, turns on the TV, and flips through the channels for a few moments, settling for a sitcom in which a man tries to avoid an oversexed, overweight, badly dressed secretary. But the chatter from outside pushes past the canned laughter and demands her attention. 
Julie sighs, leaves the bedroom, and goes into her tiny kitchen. I'll make myself a snack, she tells herself. But halfway through a lettuce and tomato sandwich, she changes her mind, pulls the half-full garbage bag out of its plastic can, ties the ends, and takes it out her front door and down the steps. On the bottom landing, she passes Mrs. Gallini's door. Living one on top of the other, both she and her landlady have maintained a respectful distance. They smile hello and exchange holiday gifts at Christmas and ignore each other's existence for the rest of the year. Outside, a slight breeze eases the summer humidity. Julie drops her garbage in one of the cans at the side of the stairs and glances surreptitiously across the street. Six of the ladies are out tonight. Julie glances up at her windows where the blue light of the television reflects off her shades. The loneliness of the evening is nearly overwhelming. Slowly, almost without thinking, Julie turns her back on her building and crosses the street. Hi, she says tentatively. The women smile at her. We were wondering when you'd come over again, says Mrs. O'Neill, sitting back in her wheelchair. The wheelchair is more for convenience than necessity. After breaking her hip two years ago, she decided that it was more comfortable than her folding chair and told the hospital authorities it had been stolen. <laughs> As usual, she wears an old threadbare pink sweater over a long flowered house dress. Her chubby bare feet are pushed into a warm pair of slippers. We even took penny bets on it, grins Jackie, a part-time beautician who works in the hair salon around the corner. She rests one hip against the railing, a cigarette dangling loosely from her wide, sardonic mouth. I won. <laughs> Julie smiles back. The night is pleasant and cool. A few cicadas vibrate in a near neighboring tree. Come sit, says one of the women, a thin, dry lady named Norma, patting the step next to her. Julie shakes her head. That's okay, she says. I prefer to stand. Mary a pleasant bleached blonde who can sometimes be heard yelling down the block for her teenage son, nods at her. She is, as usual, sitting next to Mrs. O'Neill on a small cloth director's chair. How are you, Julie? She asks, in a voice tinged with the Irish accents of her childhood. Julie shrugged. Fine, she says. In her loose green t-shirt, sweatpants, and old sneakers, she feels a little underdressed next to Mary's careful polyester fashion. I was sorry to hear about your mother, says Mary. We said hi a few times when she was visiting. She was a nice lady. Thanks, Julie says, a bit tersely. She still hasn't figured out how she feels about her mother's death. Sad because her mom is gone, or relieved because the woman who finally died was, in the end, no longer her mother. I understand you're looking for a new job. Have you found one yet? Asks Mrs. O'Neill, shooting a quick look at Mary. Surprised, Julie starts to ask how she knows, but doesn't get the chance. Why is she looking for a job? Demands another woman who Julie doesn't know, a withered form in a bright pink jogging suit who sits comfortably crocheting in an old blue folding chair. That's my oldest sister, Myra, explains Mrs. O'Neill not bothering to look at her sibling. She's staying with me for a couple of days while her house is painted. She sniffs. Of course, if it were me, I'd want to supervise their every move. 
You never know what the painters are up to. <laughs> Myra does not seem bothered by her sister's apparent contempt. My husband Joe is perfectly capable of watching the painters, she says. No reason why I need to put up with the mess and smell if he's willing to. She looks back at Julie, inquiring. They laid me off, Julie tells her. There is a general mummer of sympathy. That's too bad, says Mary. You were there a long time, too, weren't you? Seventeen years. They said they had to cut back on the payroll in my division. I hear a butt in there, says Myra, a knowing tone in her voice. Julie smiles ironically. Sam, my boss, hired an assistant for me about two months ago. Young woman right out of college. And somehow she is being kept on while I'm being let go. He said it was because they had to eliminate some of the higher salary workers. She pauses. This is where her listeners usually change the subject or offer vague reassurances. But you don't think that's the whole story, Mary prompts. The others look on expectantly, their voices friendly, sympathetic. Julie feels something rise to her throat. No, she finally says. The company is one of the major PR organizations around for technical corporations. When we started out, we were small, taking whatever clients we could. But now we've got offices on both coasts and handle a lot of the biggest companies around. We had a meeting last month, and Sam told us we were going on to the next plateau of success. He talks that way. And that we were going to have to refine our image in order to pick up more Fortune 500 firms. She takes a breath. I think that a size 16 PR representative doesn't quite fit into that image. There is a moment of silence. Mrs. O'Neill snorts, something between a laugh and a sneeze. Well, never mind, she says, and launches into a long explanation of how the oldest son of a distant relative was fired, found another job through some kind of vaguely illegal connection, and was eventually rehired into a higher level of his former company. Julie soon loses the gist of it, but the sound of the narrative and the murmurs of the listeners is strangely soothing in the fading light. It's as if all of them are caught in some old-time photograph that will never change, just the ladies and the street and the summer evening. Mrs. O'Neill finishes her story. You don't think that, like, that something like that could happen to you, she asks. Julie startled into awareness by the question, shrugs. No. A friend of mine said she's going to ask around, see if there's anything she can find out that might get me back in. But we both know it's pretty useless. And in today's market, not too many other firms will have openings either. I'll probably have to look into relocating. You know, calls out Bev, whose considerable girth is comfortably ensconced in a loud moo-moo, and who has been c concentrating on filing her nails. It's too bad that companies like yours consider a few pounds to be some kind of crime against humanity. When I worked for that Greek travel agency, they were grateful to have somebody as good as I was. I remember that agency, Jackie says. Went out of business, didn't they? <laughs> Something about the Department of Immigration? Bev scowls and returns her attention to her nails. Mrs. O'Neill cackles and turns to Norma. What do you think, she asks. Is this a wine occasion? For a moment, the ladies are quiet. Julie looks at each, but they all seem otherwise occupied, 
pulling at stray threads or lighting cigarettes. Norma finally shrugs. Why not, she says. It's been too long since we treated ourselves. Jackie clears her throat. I have a box of wine that I picked up today, she says. I'll just go and get it. <laughs> there is a general mummer of approval. Jackie stretches and ambles down the block to her house. Rusting metal squeaks as Mrs. O'Neill pulls herself awkwardly from her wheelchair. These bugs are driving me crazy, she announces. I'm going to get that bad-smelling candle that my son sent me. He said it would keep the mosquitoes away. She shuffles back to the door that leads to her ground floor apartment. A car bounces along the street, its suspension badly in need of repair. I hope he breaks an axle, Bev says, irritated. That's what he gets for going so fast, on a block with children, too. Do you have any children, Julie? asks Myra. Julie shakes her head. But she still could, says Mary. Couldn't you? Julie hates conversations like this. I could, I guess. It's not very likely, though. I mean, I'm nearly 48. It's not as though I've got much longer to go. No. The listening women nod noncommittally. Don't worry, Mary tells her. The menopause isn't so bad. At worst, it's a pain in the butt for a few years. Then you don't have to worry about it again. And there are other things you can do then. New things. <laughs> Julie nods again but looks away. It's fine for her, middle-class woman with a house and a 13-year-old son. I've got nothing. Nobody. Unless you count my mother's elderly ex-housemate, her grown kids who have their own lives to, leave, to live, and friends who constantly try to set me up with jerks. Just cut the crap, she reminds herself sternly. Your friends mean well. And what does Mary have that you want so much? A divorce, a mortgage, and an adolescent? So stop pitting yourself and get on with it. Here we go, ladies. Jackie ambles back up with a large cardboard box labeled Chablis. <laughs> she places it on one of the steps while Mary gets up and goes into the house, returning a couple of minutes later with a package of paper cups in one hand and a large bag of popcorn in the other. Jackie takes the paper cups and starts filling them and handing them around, while Mary offers Julie the popcorn bag. Open this, would you? So, asks Myra, what was the name of that company of yours? Caesar Communications, says Julie through her teeth, trying to pull the stubborn plastic apart. Interesting name, says Mrs. O'Neill, lowering herself back into her wheelchair. She is holding a small candle in a jelly jar, which she balances on the armrest. In the city? Yes, Julie mutters. The bag finally splits open. Midtown. She takes a handful of popcorn and gives the bag to, to Mrs. O'Neill. It's too bad you might need to move, but you should find something. Julie accepts a cup and sips cautiously. Not as bad as she expected. A small gray cat ambles out from under one of the parked cars on the street and stops, regarding the group of people with a surprising lack of fear. Julie who is still standing outside the area railing and who likes cats, kneels down, trying not to alarm the animal, and holds out the hand with the popcorn. Above her, the conversation goes on. The cat stops and stares at her for a few moments. It then cautiously ventures forward, bright green eyes flickering warily from her face to the food. 
Do cats eat popcorn? Jackie asks above her. My sister had a cat once would eat lettuce, Bev says. <laughs> there is the quiet flick of a lighter and a faint acrid smell. The candle tickles her nose slightly. You had a cat once, didn't you? asks Mary. Julie nods carefully, trying not to alarm the animal. Yes, she said. The cat didn't seem to mind her voice. It continues to itch closer. Darwin, he died about four years ago. Why didn't you get another? Norma asks. Mrs. Gallini doesn't like cats. She told me once that she couldn't ask me to get rid of the one I had, but after Darwin died, she didn't want any more in the house. Pity, Mary comments. Julie nods. Come on, cat, she whispers, as the animal edges up to her hand. Come on, I won't hurt you. It stares up at her and down at the popcorn. It would be a pity if you left the neighborhood, says Mary. Just when we were starting to get acquainted, we would miss you at our little gatherings. We'd like you to sit with us regularly. We would indeed, says Jackie. We would, echoes Myra. It would be a blessing if your company decided to keep you on, says Norma. A real blessing, Bev agrees. A blessing, Mrs. O'Neill whispers, and then hums, a strange sing-song mummer that Julie can't quite catch. Her attention turns back to the animal. It stretches out its neck and sniffs at her fingertips. That's it, cat, says Julie, as, having decided that her offering is acceptable, it begins nibbling at the popcorn. Julie, charmed, places a cup on the ground, reaches over, and gently scratches the animal's soft head. For a few seconds there is nothing in Julie's world but the quiet purring of the cat trembling against her fingers. A sudden hiss from behind her. Startled, Julie looks up. A small gray wisp of smoke curls up from the extinguished flame. Oh dear, says Mrs. O'Neill, now look what I've done. Spilled my wine, and right on the candle, too. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Jackie says, plenty more where that came from. The cat quickly turns and scoots off. Julie reaches for her cup and stands with some difficulty, feeling unexercised muscles protest. She takes another sip of wine. I'll bet you miss having a cat, Mary says. Julie smiles. Yes, a bit. Things are a lot cleaner now without the cat litter and the fur balls, but I do miss having a pet around. They seem to know exactly when you need somebody to caress. I'm allergic to cats, Bev complains. Cats make me break out in hives. I've told you that you should get a bird, Mrs. O'Neill tells her. Birds are dirty, Bev grouses. Only if you don't clean their cages, Julie tells her. I had a parakeet when I was a kid. It was nice. I trained it to ride on my shoulder. Suddenly, her beeper chimes at her. Better check that, Mrs. O'Neill says. Julie pulls it off her belt and checks the screen. Clients in revolt. Expect a call. Demand a hefty raise. You owe me dinner. Ginny. Julie looks up wordlessly. Good news, Mrs. O'Neill asks, accepting another cup of wine from Jackie. Maybe that Sam found he needs you after all. Julie stares at her, but the woman just brushes some popcorn crumbs off her house dress and smiles. Good, Mary says. It would be a pity for Julie to have to leave just when we were getting to know her. You know, says Jackie, 
That cat really took to you. Maybe you should adopt it. If you do, get it fixed, Norma says. Too many wild cats around here. Julie looks at her neighbors. Mrs. Golini won't let me have any pets, she says slowly. Maybe, Mrs. O'Neill says, we can change her mind. <laughs> Barbara's book for sale. So come by, buy some, buy one at least, and two, three, give them away, and uh, and she'll sign them for you. And thank you for coming and hang out for a while, and we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.